some ways, I wish we could sing that whole psalm, um, all of Psalm 90. And uh, we see certainly pictures of God's grace, especially in the, the first verse of that psalm. But we, we certainly see it uh, later on in verse 14. Each morning, fill us with your grace. We'll sing for joy throughout all our days. We're looking this morning at the second commandment. And I would invite you, if you would like uh, to turn in your copies of God's Word to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We'll be reading uh, from verse 1 to verse 6. Our focus will be on verses 4 through 6, which is the second commandment here. In Laramie, I've uh, started a series on the Ten Commandments, and we actually did four introductory sermons on the Ten Commandments, and then uh, the plan is to spend about two, uh, two sermons on each of the Ten Commandments. Exodus 20, beginning at verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's briefly pray uh, for God's blessing on the preaching of his word. Dear Heavenly Father, we do uh, pray as, as already has been prayed that you would Use that you would bless, Lord, your word, that you would use it in each of our lives. We read earlier that uh, about your word and that, Lord, it is like a two-edged sword. It, It pierces. It is living and active. And, Lord, we know that only happens through the work of the Holy Spirit. So we pray that your Holy Spirit would be at work, would use your word in our lives as each of us needs it. We pray this, we pray your blessing on it. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be glorifying to you and be truly the truth of your word. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, in this well-known, these well-known verses, the Ten Commandments, which I suspect many of us, many of you here have, have memorized even, These are are well-known words, and in the second commandment, it follows very naturally from the first commandment. The first commandment tells us what? It tells us who we are to worship. It tells us who God is and that we may have no other gods before him. But then the second commandment, what does it tell us? It tells us how we are to worship that God how we are to worship the one true God. 
Calvin says that, uh, really says the same thing in, in the first commandment, after God had taught, uh, after he had taught us who was the true God, he commanded that he alone should be worshipped. And now he defines in the second commandment, what is God's legitimate worship? It, it, it makes sense. It is logical. It is how we need to pay attention to this, that there is only one true God. This is who he is, our God, the Lord, our God, who has revealed himself to us in his word. And he has also revealed to us in his word how we are to worship him. Calvin goes on to say that it would not be sufficient for us to be instructed to worship God alone unless we also knew the manner in which he should be worshipped. We need to know how we are to worship God and God for his glory out of his good pleasure, has told us how he desires to be worshipped. And maybe a a good illustration between the the, the difference between the first and the second commandments, you could see in the life of King Jehu in 2 Kings 9 and 10. Uh, King Jehu is praised in Scripture for putting away uh, the ministers of Baal, for destroying them, for ending Baal worship in Israel, for putting to death the wicked Queen Jezebel. In uh, 2 Kings 10.28, the account of Jehu's victory ends saying, So Jehu destroyed Baal worship in Israel. And you might think, okay, that's, that sounds good. It sounds like he was doing a good thing. He was eliminating the worship of false gods. But the next verse makes it clear to us that there was a problem. There still remained a problem. The following verse says that he did not turn away from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nebat, which he had caused Israel to commit, the worship of the golden calves at Bethel and Dan. So Jehu did well, and he is, he is commended in Scripture for getting rid of Baal worship, But then he is maybe condemned or at least reproved for allowing continued worship of idols, of these golden calves. You might think, well, but but weren't the golden calves? He was just said that he eliminated Baal worship. Why are there still these golden calves? Because these golden calves were used as representations of God. They were used just like the Israelites did. After they received the the Ten Commandments, they they made this golden calf, this image of God, that Aaron said, this is the God who brought you out of Egypt. Well, Jehu and the Israelites with him were doing the same thing. So the first commandment forbids false gods. The second forbids false worship. They were worshiping God with an idol. As Philip Riken says, God has the right to tell us how he wants to be worshipped. And he has commanded us not to spurn his love by turning him into an idol. We are not to worship God except in the way that he has commanded. We are not to spurn God's love by worshipping him, by turning him into an idol. And the only way, as Riken goes on to say, that we can worship God rightly, the only thing that can really save us from our own private idolatries, maybe you think, well, I don't have a golden image, I don't have a wooden idols, I don't use these other images of God, these, these built, these crafted things to represent God. But all of us have 
idols in our worship of God. And what we need to do is to, rather than remake God into our image, the image that that we think God should be, the God that we worship, you and I need to be remade into his image. And God does that out of his grace and mercy. He does that by, he does make us more and more into his image, and he does it by bringing us to a personal saving relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. And if any of you here Do not yet have this. This is what you need more than anything else. You cannot, if you are in that that boat, if you do not yet have a personal saving relationship with Christ, you cannot but worship God uh, in idolatry. You cannot give true worship to God. Well, I also want to remind or perhaps uh, give all of you, this was, it's a reminder for my congregation because I brought this up uh, every, I think in every um, of the Ten Commandments sermons that I've gone through so far. The Westminster Larger Catechism talks about the moral law and the use of the moral law, including in question 95, which asks, what use is the moral law to all men? And I think this is very helpful for us so that we don't get just bogged down in, in legalistic thinking or pharisaical thinking. The moral law, the Ten Commandments, the moral law of God given, certainly not only, but especially seen in the Ten Commandments, summarized in the Ten Commandments, the moral laws of the use of all men to inform them of the the holy nature and will of God and of their duty, binding them to walk accordingly. Also, it is to convince them of their inability to keep it, that we can't keep the moral law of God and of the sinful pollution of our nature, hearts, and lives. But it doesn't stop there by God's grace. The moral law, the God's moral law is used in, 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 to all men, is useful to all men to humble them, to humble us, to give us a clear sense of our sin and our misery, and thus to help us to have a clearer sight of the need that you and I have of Christ and of the perfection of his obedience. So brothers and sisters, I pray that this will be used in your lives to challenge and encourage you, to show you your sin, and to point you to Christ. And our main point, which you can see in your bulletin if it's helpful, is that God cares about how he is worshipped. God cares about how he is worshipped, and you should too. We will see this in in three different ways. First, that we are to worship God as he has prescribed. Worship God as he has prescribed. Secondly, we are to actively disapprove false worship. Actively disapprove false worship. And then thirdly, especially looking at verses 5 and 6, we are to remember God's zeal and God's jealousy for his own worship. Remember God's zeal for his own worship and his promises toward those who love or hate him. So first, worship God as he has prescribed. Most of the Ten Commandments, as I'm sure you are aware, as you can see very clearly as you look through them, they are stated in the negative. But what we're talking about here in worshiping God as he has prescribed is the the positive obedience that we are to give to this second commandment. In other words, what we are to do in light of the second commandment as opposed to what we are not to do. J.G. Voss says that many, and perhaps even most, Protestant bodies have come to regard God's divine worship as more or less a matter of indifference, 
to be determined according to human preference or convenience. It is common to hold that whatever is not forbidden in the Bible is legitimate in worshiping God. This accounts for the many human corruptions into divine worship. You're likely familiar with the uh, regulative principle of worship, worshiping God as he has prescribed and only as he has prescribed in his word. That is the regulative principle of worship. We only worship God as he has instructed us to do so in his word. And it is different than the normative principle of worship, which you may have also heard of, which, which basically is what J.G. Voss just said what I just read from, that whatever is not forbidden in the Bible is legitimate in worshiping God. But we believe that we are to worship God as he has told us to and only as he has told us to. We see that not only from the second commandment, these verses we just read, we see it throughout scripture, including in Deuteronomy 12, 32. Everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take away from it. You shall not add to it or take away from it. And and the duties that are required in the second commandment, the the positive requirements of the second commandment, which you can also see in the larger catechism, question 108, it is that we are to receive, observe, and keep pure and entire all religious worship and ordinances that God has instituted in his word. And what does that include? What, What parts of God's worship, what things has God instituted as his worship? Prayer, the word, reading, hearing, and preaching of God's word, the sacraments, one of which we will be blessed to partake of uh, in communion later today, but also not only that, also church government and church discipline and the ministry, particularly ministers, and the support of the ministry of the church. And also occasional things like religious fasting and swearing by the name of God and vowing to him. These are all aspects of worship, of worship of God that he has commanded us in his word. And we get this throughout God's word, all throughout scripture, not only in the Old Testament, but in the New. What did Jesus say in the Great Commission? He said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me And go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Now, I think everybody, everybody at least who calls themselves a Christian, likes the part here about making disciples, about uh, they're on board with the Trinitarian baptism. But does everybody like the teaching that Jesus goes on to say, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you? That's a little bit harder, a little bit more difficult, not quite as as nice necessarily to think about for all, even for all believers. But what do we see practiced in the New Testament church, in Scripture, like in Acts chapter 2? We see the apostles of Jesus Christ following his instructions, teaching others to observe, not only discipling them, not only baptizing them, but teaching them to observe what Jesus Christ himself has commanded them. In Acts chapter 2, we see the beautiful picture of the the early church following Peter's sermon at Pentecost that these people are challenged. They, they, They say, what must we do? What can we do to be saved? And Peter tells them that they are to be baptized, that they are to repent and believe and be baptized. And we see that about 3,000 that day 
indeed did that. And what did they do? They devoted themselves following that to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, the breaking of bread and prayers. We see them fellowshipping with one another. We see them breaking bread. We see clearly one of these is is very clearly talking about uh, the communion, keeping the, the sacrament that Jesus Christ himself gave to remember him as we partake of the Lord's Supper. And God bless them, says he was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. And it's a really neat picture. If you look at Acts chapter 2, at the end of that chapter, you can see um, really almost all of these aspects of the worship that we are to give to God. They are practiced. They are praising. They are praying. They are listening to the word preached. They are reading God's word. They are partaking of the sacraments. They are praising God, likely in song. They are properly worshiping God. They worshiped God as he commanded them. They worshiped God as Jesus Christ instructed them according to the Great Commission. We are only to worship God how he has prescribed. The Confession of Faith speaks about this as well, that the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by God's own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Jesus talks about this. He talked about this before the Great Commission as well. In Matthew 15, he says, For the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. He also says, quoting from Isaiah the prophet, In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Why is their worship vain? Why was it vain? Why was Jesus condemning their worship? Why did he call them hypocrites? Because they were teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. We see this in other places as well. We see it very clearly in in, in Colossians, for example, that we are to subject ourselves to regulations of God and not according to the doctrines of men, Because as Paul goes on to say, these things have an appearance of wisdom in self-imposed religion, false false humility and neglect of the body, but they are actually of no value against this indulgence of the flesh. Brothers and sisters, we cannot, we must not, we may not take this lightly. How has God prescribed us to worship him? He has prescribed specific ways in his scripture how we are to worship him. We are told, and and preachers are told, teaching elders are told that we are to preach the word. We are to use God's word as well, not only in the public preaching, but in private uh, correction and private counseling of others to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. That's even something that all of us are called to do with one another. But what are those, all of us who hear God's word to do with it? We are to hear it. We are to receive it. We are to put away our sin, as James 1 says. And we are to be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. So not only is the word to be preached, it is to be received. It is to be done and not only heard. We also see very clear instructions. We could go for I'm sure more than an hour, talking about all the instructions of prayer in Scripture. 
I'll just mention two. 1 Thessalonians 5, brothers, pray for us. Colossians 4, 2, consider earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it with thanksgiving. We also see the instruction for fellowship, the fellowship, the body of believers, and praising one another, using psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs to praise. And did you notice, have you noticed, have you paid attention that part of that, as we let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, we are to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom. So there's an aspect in which as we are singing psalms together, we're not only singing in praise to God, we're singing to one another. You're singing to those who are beside you or behind you or in front of you. We are called to be filled with the Spirit and to address one another. We are called to sing and make melody to the Lord in each of our hearts. These are some of the things that are for regular use in our worship of God and the worship of the Lord our God, the, the reading and the preaching of the word, prayer and praising God, as well as the sacraments, which we will be reading about and partaking of later. But there are also some for occasional use, but those things ought not to be uh, ignored. Fasting and vowing, and you might be thinking, well, how, how is that an aspect of worship? How is vowing to the Lord? How is, how is uh, swearing by the name of God and vowing to him, how is that part of worship? Brothers and sisters, we have the opportunity to do that whenever, whenever you receive a, a new member, whether it be a baptized member or a communicant member into your, your church, this body of believers. There's public covenanting, public making promises before God by the parents of baptized children, by those members who are coming into communion with you, and you also are before God, you are making a promise to those, to the parents of the baptized child to, to help them, to pray for them, or to those who become communicant members who are joined in the fellowship of this body. You promise to pray and care for them as well. So that is a way, and an important way, a significant way. Yes, it's part of the sacrament of baptism uh, in some cases, but that is a way in which you and I can, can swear by the name of God and vow to him in worship through public covenanting. It's called the covenant of church membership that, that people take, that parents take, and that new members take. But also, another one that is mentioned is fasting, religious fasting. Maybe this, this doesn't have to take place in public corporate worship, but this is an aspect of our worship to God. It's, it's something that we ought to do occasionally. Fasting, they, they are to be done on special occasion as part of worshiping our God, as being part of the church of God. And I want to ask you all and challenge you all, when's the last time you fasted? in order to spend time with God in his word and in prayer to him? Has it been weeks or months or years or maybe is it, is it ever something you have done for more than perhaps a meal? I would strongly encourage you all, you saints here at Black Forest Reformed Church, spend time fasting and in prayer. Fast and pray for this congregation that God has put you in. Fast and pray for your pastors as well as your ruling elders. Fast and pray for one another. Fast and pray for the work of God to go forth throughout this area of, 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 uh, uh, of, of this country, of this city, of this place that he has put you in. Well, secondly, how we are to worship God according to his word is that we are to actively disapprove false worship 
actively disapprove false worship. In the second commandment, we are forbidden to worship God uh, by images or any way that is not appointed in his word. Or to put it positively, like the, the larger catechism does, we are to disapprove, detest, and oppose all false worship. And according to each one's place and calling, remove false worship and all monuments of idolatry. So what ought we to do in light of that? What can we do in light of that? How are we to disapprove, to detest, and oppose false worship? How are we to remove false worship and monuments of idolatry? Well, I think the most significant way in which we are called to do this, which all of us are called to do this, is by telling others the truth, telling others the gospel, telling others about God and how he is to be worshipped, yes, as well. And this ought to lead us to evangelize. This ought to lead us to tell others about God, to tell us the truth that you have been given, to tell others, like we read in in 1 Peter 3, the reason for the hope that is in you with gentleness and and fear. Acts 17, what does Paul do when he's uh, in Athens? says that his spirit was provoked within him. Why? Because he saw that the city was full of idols. And I think you and I, like Paul, we we don't like idols. We don't like idolatry. We don't like idol worship. Um, I've seen them uh, see idols in people's homes and in their yards, and um, I I don't like it. I'm sure you don't either. But what are we to do about that? What does Paul do about that? It says in the following verse that he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. He was reasoning with those. He was telling those people who were, who were worshiping idols about the true God. In one case, as you, as you probably remember, he talked to the people about the unknown God that they were trying to worship, and he explained, this is the God. And he talked about the Lord our God. But Paul also reasoned with the Jews. The Jews, were they doing idol worship? Were they bowing down to golden calves or, or carven images. Well, they were not physical idol worshipers, at least at that time, for the most part, but they only thought that they were worshiping the true God. They only thought that they were worshiping God as he had told them to, but actually they were not. They had rejected God. They refused to worship Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so Paul was also telling them about God, telling them the truth of the gospel. And we know by God's grace that some of their hearts were changed, that some of them repented and came to Jesus Christ. We are also told in Deuteronomy chapter 7, for example, that there's this command that that we are to break down the altars and dash in places their pillars and chop down their ashram and burn their carved images with fire. This was specifically to the Israelites as they went into the promised land, as they went into the land of the nations whose Uh, whose land God was giving them. But this is something we should be doing as well. And I don't want you to take this and when you get home from church, break into your neighbor's house and destroy their idols if they have them. We do need to remember the instruction that it is according to each one's place and calling. My family and I stayed at an Airbnb uh, a few months ago and they had like some Buddhas around and I really didn't like seeing them. I actually put one of them, uh, the one that was small, into a closet so I didn't have to look at it. But I wasn't going to break it because it wasn't my place, my calling to do that. 
Yes, do take every opportunity to share the truth of the gospel with your neighbors. It's probably not your place or your calling to go and destroy their idols if they have them. And maybe for your children, if your children have an idol, which by God's grace I hope is certainly not the case and I trust is not the case, but it is not your place or your calling to do that for your neighbors. But also, it's an effect of missions of evangelism that idols are literally destroyed. I remember hearing uh, my, my former pastor, Dave Long, after he went uh, on one of his trips uh, to South Sudan and he uh, almost couldn't speak about what had happened there because it was so moving to him that he got to experience an idol-burning ceremony, that these people who had come to faith in Jesus Christ took all of their idols and threw them in a huge fire and burned them. And he said it was one of the most moving things he ever experienced in his life. So these kind of things do still happen. They might not happen in your neighborhood, but they do happen. So pray for God's work, for the, for the mission work in places that maybe unlike our nation, still have all of these household gods, these idols, these physical idols that are worshipped. But for you and I, what do we need most in this as we think about disapproving false worship? What we need most is for you and me, we need to actively disapprove, detest, and oppose the false worship of God in ourselves. We need to remove the false worship and the monuments of idolatry within ourselves. Not just idols of the heart, putting other things or people or whatever above God, certainly is something we see in the first commandment especially, but we are to put improper thoughts of God out of our minds, especially as we worship him, but throughout all of our life. We can do this by worshiping God as he has revealed himself to us, by worshiping God the God of love, and worshiping God, the God of wrath, by worshiping God, our creator, by worshiping God, our redeemer, by worshiping the God of the Old Testament, the God of the New Testament, the God of the Bible. We are to worship the true God as he has revealed himself to us, not according to our own desires, our own imaginations. Again, Phil Riken, he says that we too are tempted to worship God the way we want him to be, rather than the way he actually is. And we often do that by emphasizing the things about God that we like, that make us comfortable, that, that make us happy, and minimizing the rest. Brothers and sisters, that is not how we are called to worship God. We are to fear our God. And it is a good thing to fear God. And uh, Laramie, we've been going through a study on the fear of God, and one thing that I've really appreciated is one aspect of the fear of God that we should always remember as we think about what this means. The fear of God, experiencing the fear of God, is a physically affecting phenomenon. It is like your knees shaking, whether in terror or in delight, it doesn't matter, but that fear of God should move us, should move you and me, and we are to worship and fear God the way he has told us the way he has revealed himself to us and the way he has told us to do so. Well, thirdly, we are called to remember God's zeal. Remember God's zeal for his own worship and his promises toward those who hate or love him. Remember God's zeal for his own worship and his promises toward those who hate and or, or love him. I want to read verses 5 and 6 again. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. God says, I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is not ashamed. God is not embarrassed. He is not uncomfortable with being a jealous God. Really, he is actually revealing another of his titles. It it could be translated right here, the, the God who is jealous. Or it could also be translated the God who is zealous with a Z, not a J. Both of those are very appropriate translations. But jealous, God being jealous is not inappropriate or wrong by any means. Maybe we tend to feel a little uncomfortable when we think about that, but we should not. One commentator said that godly jealousy, it is not the insecure, insane, or possessive human jealousy that we often interpret this word jealousy to mean. Rather, God's jealousy is an intensely caring devotion to the objects of his love. It is like a mother's jealous protection of her children, a father's jealous guarding of his home. Another commentator said that a God who is not jealous would be as contemptible as a husband who didn't care whether or not his wife was faithful to him. Jealousy is God's love protecting himself. Throughout scripture, God gives us pictures. He even calls himself that he is the husband of his church, of his people. He calls them out for their idolatry as being what? That they are going to others, that they are being sexually immoral, that they are committing adultery and even worse, against the Lord their God. God says about himself in Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his his name. Jeremiah 31 is another place where God talks about that. He says, talking about the covenant that he made with his people, and he says that he's talking about the the new covenant that he is to make. And when he refers back to the covenant they broke, he says, they did this though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And just as a little bit of an aside, this ought to be challenging. As we think of God as husband of his church, this ought to be challenging for those of us who are husbands and wives as well. That we are to love God like he loves the church. Certainly like we see Christ, the, the picture of Christ. What is, what is the point of marriage? Marriage, arguably the, the most important aspect of marriage is that it is meant to be a picture of Christ's love for his church first and foremost like we see in Ephesians 5. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of his church, his body, and is himself his savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to every, in everything to their husbands. It goes on to talk about husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And in the same way, husbands should love their own wives as their own bodies. Paul goes on to say, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Christ himself is husband of the church, in, a, in a, basically the same way like God is calling himself husband of his church, of his 
people. Calvin speaks about this as well. He says that God is not set before us in the character of a husband. Sorry, he, he is set before us in the character of a husband who suffers no rival. How can we not see God's jealousy, his, his zeal for his worship, for his people, from his church, from his wife? Moses, in Exodus 20, verse 5, when he talks about a jealous God, he is alluding to the violation of this spiritual marriage between God and his church, his people. But not only do we see that God is a jealous and zealous God, we see also in the latter part of this commandment that he is and he will be visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. What are we to do with those words? Those are hard. Those are difficult. These are strong words. Well, we are to take them seriously. We are to believe God when he says these things. But really what we ought to see, I think what ought to be our focus is God's grace and mercy that he shows here. If if you weren't aware, when he, he talks about the third and fourth generation visiting the iniquity of their fathers upon them, of those who hate him, but he says, show steadfast love to thousands of those who love him and keep his commandments. This is not thousands of people. This is thousands of generations. So while God's wrath does go to the third and fourth generations of those who hate him, it goes to thousands of generations of those who love him. We saw maybe a little picture of that in Psalm 90 as well, that a thousand years is like a day to God. Calvin uh, speaks, I think, in a very helpful way about this, especially about these last sections of the second commandment. Calvin says that God partly terrifies them by threats and partly attracts them by sweet promises in order to keep them in the way of duty. Although he begins with threatening, still far preferring mercy to his severity, he rather gently eludes them, sorry, allures them, then compels them by fear to his allegiance. For God declares that he will be merciful even to a thousand generations. Calvin goes on and says that this this is the proof of God's inestimable kindness and even indulgence that he designs to to bind himself to his servants, to whom he owes nothing, so far as to acknowledge in his favor toward them their seed also for his people. He is saying, your seed are my people. Your children to a thousand generations are included in those who love me. Calvin goes on, says that it appears that it is wrong to infer merit from the promised reward because God does not say he will be faithful or just toward the keepers of his law, but merciful. That is a a wonderful thing to see here at the end. Who does God show steadfast love to? To those who love him and keep his commandments. He doesn't say, I will be faithful to those who love me and keep my commandments. He says, I will be merciful I will show steadfast love to those who love me and keep my commandments. It's very helpful, and it, it ought to be very helpful as we think about God's, God's law, God's moral law, as given in the Ten Commandments. This is the covenant of grace between God and ourselves. This is part, God's law is covenant with his people. 
It's not like God is responding to our faithfulness. Because our faithfulness, our love for God, our keeping of God's commandments, all of us here can admit that, that we fail miserably, horribly, terribly. But God, it's not due to our faithfulness, which really is a lack of faithfulness. It is because of his mercy, because of his mercy, his love toward us, that he, he shows this steadfast love to those who love him and keep his commandments. He does not give us what we deserve. If God was faithful in order to how we loved him, in order to how well we kept his commandments, we would be and we are without Christ lost and destined for eternal condemnation that we deserve in hell. Well, as we conclude here, I want to uh, remind you once again uh, something I said at the beginning about God's image in us. What is one reason why God cannot be represented by a picture, by a sculpture? Why, cannot God, why can God not be represented by an image, by an idol? Since he intended his likeness to appear in us, as Calvin says, God intended his likeness to appear in you and in me. Where do we see God's representation of himself? Where do we see his likeness? We see it in his special creation by his grace in man and woman. Again, Phil Riken, we are not allowed to make God's image, but only to be God's image. We are not to make God's image, but we are to be God's image. And maybe you think, well, but, but I fail even in doing that. I can't be a good image of God. And yes, that's true. Your ability to be God's image was badly damaged by sin, by the sin of Adam, by the continual sin that you and I actively sin against God. The image of God in you and me has been defaced. Riken puts it, he says, like, it's like so much graffiti on a mirror. I'd actually go much further than that. It's, it's a mirror that was cracked, broken, destroyed, blown up, and then graffitied and painted all over. That is what God's image in us has, has come to because of sin. And our fallen and our sinful condition, as Riken says, we are no longer able to reflect God's glory as he intended. But God didn't leave us in that state. God didn't leave us as a broken, as a destroyed, as a horrific image. He sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to repair his image in us. Jesus is the true image. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Jesus is the exact representation of his being. And this is why Jesus could say, as he did in John 14, anyone who sees me has seen God. Jesus Christ, as Riken goes on to say, is the point of contact. So in order to come to God in true worship, we don't need to make some kind of idol. All we need to do is come to our Lord, come to God our Father, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we come to Christ and in Christ and through Christ, then God lives in us by his Holy Spirit. We are made a temple of the living God. What is God the Holy Spirit doing? He is working in you and me and all of his people to repair the image of God in us so that we can live for his glory forever. For all the rest of our lives, however long God gives us here on the earth, and for all eternity after that as well. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ 
has repaired that image of himself in you. And going back to our main point, God cares about how he is worshipped, and you should too. You should do that by worshiping God as he has prescribed. You should do that by actively disapproving false worship. You should do that by remembering God's zeal for his own worship and his promises toward those who love or hate him. And I hope that you're brought to conviction of your sin, but that you're brought, furthermore, to Christ, to Christ who lived a perfect life, who died for your sake, who became sin for you in order that you might become the righteousness of God. The second commandment, like all of the moral law of God, is used by God to show you and me our sin, to show us that we cannot keep God's law, and then to point us to Jesus Christ, to Christ perfectly keeping God's law for our sake. And so that now, when, Jesus, when God himself looks at us, what does he see now? He doesn't see our sin. He doesn't see that destroyed image of himself but instead he sees the perfect image of himself in Christ, in Christ's righteousness in us. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for, uh, Lord, this, this command, this command which is, which is challenging, which we know, we know we fail to keep it. We know here even this morning in these, in these minutes as we've we, as we have worshipped you this morning, each one of us has failed to worship you as you prescribed, at least failed to do so perfectly. But Lord, we also know that, that our sins have been forgiven, that the Holy Spirit is working in us, that Jesus Christ as our high priest and mediator is interceding on our behalf and even in fact is perfecting our worship, is making it acceptable in your eyes. And so Lord, we cannot but thank you and praise you for that. And we ask, we beg that you would continue this work that you have started in us, that you would continue to repair your image in us through the work of the Holy Spirit in us because of Christ and his righteousness, his life and death and resurrection and ascension and his doing that for us. Lord, we we thank you and praise you and we beg for your continued help, your sustaining us as we go throughout our lives, as we go throughout the rest of this week and beyond. Lord, help us to truly glorify and enjoy you. Help us, Lord, to be convicted of our sin and pointed to Jesus Christ, our Savior. We pray this in his name. Amen.